Hi, my name is Deborah Ogden and I would like to welcome you to this third season of On Brand With. The idea behind this podcast has always been to bring you into my world of personal brand and impact and hopefully bring it to life through the experiences and stories of me and my guests. One of the things I've learned over the years is that we all have a story to tell and over the coming episodes I'll be chatting to some more people that I know and admire and some that I don't know and I'll be asking them to share their stories and how they use their personal brands to really make an impact. We'll be exploring what best practice looks like in the real world. So let's begin. My guest today is Michelle Hodgson. Now, Michelle, for many, will be known as the director of the Huddersfield Literature Festival, which this conversation is incredibly well-timed because the festival actually runs this year back to live events after two years online. It runs from the 24th of March through to the 3rd of April. Um, Michelle also runs her own copywriting business, Keywords Copywriting, and she's also Business Development Manager at Communities Together and Festival Manager for the Sangam Festival, which runs in Huddersfield and Kirklees. Now, her love of words, of literature and books is clear throughout the conversation and has been a thread from the very start of her career when she set out working in publishing. And, you know, she's so generous with her stories during our chat because throughout the festival, through her time in publishing, she's represented and met some fascinating characters and some real household names. And she shares some of her experiences with them. Now, this podcast, as you know, is all about the stories of my guests. And I start by asking Michelle when her love of stories started. Oh, very, very young. Um, my mum was a, a, a teacher, junior school teacher, and uh, my parents both had books around the house. So I just used to pick books up that they read when I was a bit older, but obviously they, they bought us, I have, I have three sisters, they bought us all um, a lot of books. And also, really importantly, we had a, a wonderful local library, which is sadly now gone. I was brought up in Derby um, and we had Little Over Library, which we used to go to regularly and collect as many books as we could. Um, And also my younger sister, who followed me into publishing, I used to read, I used to read a story and then tell her the story afterwards. Oh, wow. So it it was almost like it was a lovely bond between us because she was, she's four years younger than me. Um, So, uh, yeah, that was really nice. So you're sorry, of... six years younger than me. <laughs> You'll be in trouble if she listens, <laughs> won't you? <laughs> uh, you know, you've hit on something there. I was thinking about this with libraries, and I was really shocked when um, Oscar, my son, was younger, and for the first, you know, we we rejoined the library, and how many books you can take out these days? Because when I was 
you know, young and we used the library, you had to pick three books, I seem to remember. And it was a real challenge on a Saturday morning when you were sort of six to choose the books that were the absolute ones that you wanted that week. Definitely, definitely. I mean, libraries are hugely important. I mean, obviously now I buy a lot of books and I get sent books because of the festival but they are important for other people and it's important for children to have books in the house and to have access to a school library and um, I can remember as well being taken not just to the Little Over Library but being taken to the main Derby Library and that was almost overwhelming because there were so many books to choose from there. Yeah so who would have captured which author would have captured your heart from an early from early days? Well, I think like everyone of my generation, there was a lot of Eni Blyton <laughs> around. Um, so the faraway tree and uh, I did quite like, um, you know, the magic realism type things. Um, story And the usual stories of children and activities and adventures they get got up to. Although I was, I think, aware that um, their lives were very different from mine, particularly mm-hmm. if you read those uh, school books. Which yeah, and was it Mallory Towers? Yes. And what was the, the other one? one? Uh, yeah, Claire. Claire. Yeah. <laughs> I, I can't remember, <laughs> no, but I can't uh, but the other thing I really loved was um, books on horses. You know, right, like, okay. typical little girl, quite into the idea of horses. Um, and, although I've never really been involved in later years but I loved reading about horses and I, I loved them um, there was a silver brumby series I can't remember the author but that was uh, about wild horses who mm. spoke to each other you know so it's kind of <laughs> like I suppose it's like watching an animated film of um of, of animal characters who come to life so I loved the silver uh, silver brumby series um yeah and then later on I just picked up things that that were around the house and my my dad had a lot of science fiction so I got okay. quite into um Isaac Asimov and you know all the greats from from that era I think the wonderful thing when you when children are younger particularly is and they're they're not aware of it but what I absolutely love is that you create even though the characters are there on the page you have your own visual in your mind don't you and you sort of add your own bits to it. And one thing that I've always felt was that if there was a film of a book, it was always very important to me to read the book first before I would see a film because I had a very clear picture in my own mind and I set the scene. I know that leads to disappointment so often, but are you the same? Yeah, yeah it's a tricky one with with. Um, film adaptations because if you've already read the book and then they make the film you think well I know the story so um but sometimes it you know film can bring something different to a story and definitely the other way around because obviously there's a lot more information in a book than you can fit in a film uh it is tricky if they if they cast a character and you think well that's not really how I pictured them um, but occasionally I've watched a film and that's led me to the book if I yeah. haven't got around to reading the book. It's interesting. So we, we've had, we've been through all the Harry Potters in, in our house with, well, Oscar's 14 now, but, um, and it wasn't a genre that I would have picked up at all if I hadn't been reading them with him. Uh, is, is that something that you would read? So we would have missed that from a traditional audience point of view because we're older than... Um, it would have been aimed for. But do you go back and read things like Harry Potter and do you wish that that it had been around when you were younger? Um, Now, with that, 
there's a lot of fantasy around. There mm. are a lot of incredibly good fantasy writers, and I read a lot of them in my youth. Mm. So in a way, this is going to sound odd, but I didn't really need Harry Potter yeah, because yeah. I'd already read a lot of very high-quality fantasy books. And by the time Harry Potter came along, for me, I felt a bit old for it, although yeah. I was very aware adults did read it, and that's, you know, that's absolutely fine. I'm not at all a reading police person, <laughs> and I would never say you should be reading this, you should be reading that yeah. as a child. You should just... It's great that children read, before, yeah. or, and adults read whatever they, they want to read. Um, but, yeah, I, I mean, I, I was more interested in... The Ursula Le Guin and people like that from from uh, you know those early days, and I always had slightly more of a science fiction okay. bent than rather than uh, than fantasy up up to a point. So I think I read a lot of fantasy in my teenage years, and then when I and science fiction, but then tended to focus more on science fiction, and which is uh, I, I worked on science fiction books in in later years as well. So you you found this love of reading and obviously it's become your career words have become your career we could talk about that but was did you realize early on that you wanted to work in publishing within the world of books um fairly early on um one one thing that actually really pushed me towards that which which is quite interesting again about fantasy um we went on holiday uh, when I was a student. Um, I went with my parents on holiday and my younger sister. Um, and we went to Portugal because they had a friend there who owned a printing press. Oh, wow. So while we were there, we went to visit um, the printing press and they were printing um, books, but also posters for The Hobbit. <laughs> and I'd, I'd read, you know, The Hobbit and the... Um, obviously Lord of the Rings mm. and all that as part of my fantasy interest back then um, and just seeing those posters come out of, and the books come out of the printing press got me thinking again about publishing and and I was obviously always interested in in English and storytelling and the written word but I was studying French and art mm. so that that all tied in a little bit as well so that was one key thing that I can remember really clearly and I had that poster on my wall as a student for years as well afterwards um so that was what yeah that was one area but it was very very difficult back then to get good careers advice mm. because um I'm old enough that it was pre-internet so it was going to the library at the university and trying to find information on different careers mm. and with publishing people tended to focus on editorial or more general marketing and the way I got my job, I, I moved to London and I went to a, a an agency and just mm. said, what sort of jobs have you got? Employment agency. It was literally like, have you got any jobs in publishing? In publishing, though. Yeah, you knew pub- that, oh, yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. I knew you I was knew looking was... in publishing, definitely, by then. And they said, oh, we've got a job as a publicity assistant. And I, I genuinely didn't really know what that was. And they kind of said, well, you help the publicity director organised launch parties and bookshop events and support them in promoting authors and media interviews. And and I thought, well, that really sounds up my street because Mm. when I was a student, I got involved in student television. I um, I was at Leicester. I volunteered at Radio Leicester. So I was interested in the broadcasting side and the the promotional side as well as books. So it just seemed like kind of a perfect job for me which it was at the time. I found that quite interesting because I was going to ask you about this 
um, I, I, I sort of have, and, and this might be completely wrong, but I have in my mind that a lot of people that write, because I would have thought at times it's quite a solitary activity and therefore you sort of think are people who write more introverted and then marrying that with this ability to publicize that work and also I mean I know what it's like having your own business and and feeling uncomfortable sometimes you know it's your baby and the way you do it so if you create a book and it might have been your life's work but it probably have been a good couple of years creating this to hand that over to somebody to publicize for you that must you must need so much trust I think that's um the case with all creativity actually I remember an author who's actually a Nobel Prize winning scientist said um when his book was published he said my book wasn't finished it's finished when they come to my house and take it from my hands you know (laughs) because there's always more you can do. And also, interestingly, a lot of authors said to me when they were reading their work at events after after mm. the book had been published, mm. they changed some of the words because they thought, oh, no, this would be better. Just odd little things here and there. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. Yeah. So I think, um, and, and it, you know, I've studied art and, and artists quite a lot in my life, both kind of through college and, and since for interest and for my own interest. And Again, there's definitely a feeling that um, with some artists that, you know, the work is, is never quite finished, but they have to hand it over at some point. And the more I've read about various artists, a lot of them destroy a lot of their work. And particularly some very well-known artists whose mm. paintings sell now for millions, you know, they, they kind of destroyed paintings, which today would have been revered, but they, they weren't happy with them. wasn't good enough for them. Yeah, so I that think perfectionism. The, yeah, and and I've been also reading a lot recently about um, just about creativity in general because it's something that interests me and and the distance between the concept and what you end up creating. And I think this is the same in in lots of things in life. Mm. Um, you might have an idea of something you want to achieve, but will the end result look like that? Um, and, and the do you is, know what that end result is as well sometimes in a Yeah, sometimes you're not even yeah. sure. Um, it needs, yeah, it's experimentation to get there. But I think the answer is that you, you probably never will get it exactly. And it's how do you accept that? Like, mm. And that, you know, that might be applicable to any aspect of work. You know, you might be working on a project and it has a, a finished date or a big event or something mm. at the end of it. And there's always going to be something which you look back on and say, well, actually, we could have done that better or we could have done that differently. And it's how do you accept that, take that as something to to move forward with rather than, oh, well, you know, this all went brilliantly, but that one thing that went wrong really bugs me. You know, <laughs> I can't get over it. <laughs> and we do, we have that negative bias, don't we? So we tend to look at what we haven't achieved, but we overlook all the positives. And also with any art in whatever form it's so subjective as well yeah absolutely yeah so then it becomes well whose opinion do you value and and a lot of authors will say well if I'm, i i don't read the good or the bad mm. reviews but um yeah there are I, I see posts as well which are quite funny on social media things like 
I got a one-star review for my book because it didn't arrive. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you get that quite a lot on Amazon or a picture of the, cor- the corner torn yeah. and you think, ooh, that's not Brought quite... Brought their rating down, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, that whose opinion do you listen to? And I've heard this before when people have said, you know, whether they've been writing a screenplay or they know what the commercial audience would want but actually it's not necessarily what their story is in their mind that must be a real challenge yeah I think unless you're really writing for say you're writing for Milton Boone they've mm. got a clear kind of guidelines as to it's what formulate form, formula yeah if you like and I'm not saying it's easy because mm. you know yeah. you have to have a certain skill to do that as well but um that with most writing and I think lot of things generally there isn't that formula to follow and I think you've got to be very careful about the idea of writing to suit an audience and the difficulty with the publishing world as well is the the time it takes for things to to come out Mm. so for example say you get a big um you know a, a big novel comes out that sells a lot of copies like the girl on the train you know mm. and everybody then all the other publishers want their own girl on the train or recently with Richard Osman's um cozy yes. crime novels yeah. cozy crime's been around for ages but mm. it's suddenly really come back to the fore with the Thursday murder club so publishers start saying all oh, right we need to publish a Thursday murder club but by someone else and slightly different so that's all very well but by the time those are written and then come out and and they come out will people have moved on to the Another the genre. next thing yeah so it, it's like and i'm sh- i know musicians have this problem with you know if you have a successful album what do you do for the next album because people want more of the same but then they don't want you to just keep doing more of the same forever so i think that's really challenging i mean they they actually call it the you know the the difficult second novel mm. because if someone has success with the first novel then how do you follow that up? How do you keep your audience happy? Mm. And there's some authors I'm big a big fan of, for example, someone like Rupert Thompson, um, who's coming to our festival this year. He writes kind of a different novel each time, and that's okay. really hard for the marketing people, but that's the beauty of his writing. He's written things set in different centuries, in different parts of the world. Um, and, you know, I, I enjoy them all, but in a different way. So, yeah, we're creatures of habit, aren't we? But then we're looking to be challenged. Well, some people are looking to be challenged as well. Yeah, but it's as much about the challenge for marketing companies, which mm. haven't worked kind of in PR marketing. Mm. I do appreciate that. But at the same time, it, it's a, it's really difficult then for people creating things which are going to be different each time. Um you know, because they're they're people who've who've got that um, inspiration to to do different types of writing or films or music, mm. and and it's a different audience. It's a little bit like we said before we came on mic here when I was talking about the audience of the podcast. You sort of collect people as you go along, depending on who my guest is, and therefore it isn't one target audience, and it's it's the same with with any marketing isn't it it's knowing who your audience are so that you know who you're marketing to and where they are and what their platforms and you know the publications how you you reach that audience but um as a a publicity agent if you haven't got that genre or clarity then you could miss the mark quite easily 
Yeah, and um, with novels, it was always easier publicising a novel if you had a hook on it, mm. with it. Yes. So, for example, someone like Jodie Piku, who writes... Yeah. Um, I, I hesitate to call them this, but some people call them book club club mm. novels. So okay. that you know they've got a good they've got a good hook, a good interesting point to to discuss in a book club environment, and it makes it e- easier for um, a newspaper to you know write an article about this particular subject that she she covers. Mm. And she's such an amazing writer, and you know really tackles subjects, very difficult topics mm. and very edgy topics at times in depth. Um, so she's she's a lot more than you know just someone. Oh, here's here's let's pick something out of the news that we'll write about. Um, but my point being that 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 can be an easier thing for people to talk about and to promote. But as you say, with your podcast mm. and with something like a festival, mm. even one that's you know like ours, which is literature. Mm. That doesn't mean it's just an author sitting on a stage. You know, the, you might have a, a children's character doing a mm. meet and greet. You might have a well-being workshop where people use poetry. Um, we've done them where people we use poetry for people suffering with dementia, people with mental health issues. So there, there are areas like that. You might pick a non-fiction book and have a lovely discussion around it. Mm. So... Uh, we had Ask an Ocean Explorer, someone who'd um, worked on Blue Planet. And, uh, you know, great, great audience for that, including lots of children came along finding out about the sea and the, the oceans. Um, or, oh, goodness, a- any nonfiction subject really could could launch an interesting conversation. Talking about the Huddersfield Literature Festival. So how many years is it now? Uh, it started in 2006 and I went to volunteer in 2012 and found it had stopped running um, mm-hmm. because the person who's running it is all, all, also works at the university and is an author and it's just, you know, a lot of work to do as well. Um, so the suggestion was, well, would you like to have a go at relaunching <laughs> it? So we, I relaunched it in 2013. Um, I think I had about four months run up. We just <laughs> did a long weekend uh, I always remember there's £40.70 in the bank if I managed to get a bit of sponsorship <laughs> and a bit of money from the university. Um, and then as soon as that finished, I just started trying to put it on a more professional footing. So getting it set up properly as a social enterprise um, and getting all, all of the things you need on board for that and, and all the policies in place. And so, yeah, this is my 2022 will be my 10th festival. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. There's such a legacy with the festival, isn't it? We were we were saying again, it's not just about books. It some people wouldn't necessarily think we were we were saying, you know, you have the Ilkley uh literature festival and and um there are very well known festivals, but Huddersfield you wouldn't necessarily think of oh the literature festivals. So it, it's it's putting a spotlight onto Huddersfield as well, but just from a, an inclusivity point of view, a diversity point of view, you've talked about mental health, dementia. My goodness me, it touches so many areas, doesn't it, beyond books? Yeah, I think in, in a way it's a shame it's called a literature <laughs> festival. I mean, obviously I inherited that name. <laughs> Um, quite a few literature festivals have rebadged themselves. They'll say Festival of Words or Spoken mm. Word or something like that. 
because I think it, it there is something in the word literature that can put off some audiences and they, they just wouldn't even pick up the brochure. Mm. Whereas if they did, you know, free family events to take your kids to on Saturday with face painting and juggling and, you know, something like that going on as well as storytelling. Is it Zog this year you've got? Yeah, we're opening um, a hub on the piazza as part of Mm. the temporary contemporary initiative. Um, And we will have uh, a big grand opening on the 5th of March. We've got character costume Zog. We've got Grandad Wheels who wrote books. He's a wheelchair user who wrote books for his grandson to help him understand what it was like using a wheelchair. So he's coming to to do storytelling, but also to do design a wheelchair for few, of the future competition. So you know, there's that creativity as well. Again, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, and we'll be working a few times with Maker World next door, who um, which various people get involved in that, including the children's art school. So you know, we've worked with them before, where they'll do mask making, and we'll do storytelling around that. Um, so that's yeah, that's fifth of March, and the festival starts in earnest on the the uh, 24th of March but also in our hub on the 19th of March we've got a a lady called Salma Zaman who's a local uh, dance teacher and educator and she um, is doing a special event for children with special needs and disabilities Um, so it's based around storytelling but it also involves tactile sensory um, elements and she's created a wonderful kind of two-hour event for for children with special needs so that's part of it as well Mm. and that's really really important for us she's also doing another project which involves creating online videos and online downloadable packs Mm. activity packs for children with special needs the idea behind that was during lockdown a lot of children weren't getting to school and they Mm. were having to shield the you know particularly the ones with special needs or disabilities were having to shield much Mm. longer um and you know, there wasn't as much provision for them as even normally they would get. So we started that as a pilot project and we've we've had extra funding to develop that further from from April. So there are there are projects like that that we do and projects with schools. We're working with Huddersfield Town uh, Foundation. I think partnerships are really key. Yeah, that collaboration. There's so many brilliant organisations in Huddersfield and Kirklees doing amazing things Mm. and a lot of us kind of aware of each other and a lot of us work together Mm. um and and you just think well one of the challenges is we're all constantly trying to get funding and you know you you watch I don't know if you watch any of any of these programs like I love billions I love watching billions (laughs) but sometimes I think oh just one of their you know (laughs) weekly daily salaries would fund all of our (laughs) organizations for the next 10 years but you talk about collaboration and you've just brought back a memory for me so I can remember and it's probably well it's pre-pandemic so it's probably three or four years ago now I can see you thinking what's she going to say sitting in a conference room with you down at the John Smith Stadium and uh, Sean Jarvis commercial director at the time talking about Sir Patrick Stewart and you turning to me and saying I'm going to you know, ask him and say, do you think we can get him into the Literature Festival? And of course you did. Yeah. Well, I've, I've done, I've been to so many events and talks over my life that I know that no one ever wants to ask the first question. But once someone's asked the first question, people will often get yeah. bombarded and you don't get your chance. Absolutely. So I just said, right, I'm going to be first. I'm going to, I'm going to jump in. <laughs> and 
So Patrick Stewart is our patron. We have two patrons, um, Patrick Stewart and Lem Sussay, the poet. Um, and Lem has done a few things for us. And Sir Patrick, of course, was living, well, still is living in America a lot of the time. And I didn't have a direct conduit to him. So, yes, I said to Sean, can you? And he passed on an email and, um, yeah, I heard back and we took it from there and he did a wonderful event for us um, battling the beast from the east in 2018 we just managed to get it in before the snow came the next day that night I think Um, in the town hall we filled the town hall and we're hoping that um, I've heard he's writing his autobiography Ah. so we're hoping he'll come back from that he did say he would do a return visit at some point I've referenced that event so many times in my work because, as you know, I do a lot of work around presence and gravitas and how often people assume that gravitas is loud and big. And I will never forget him standing. He's much smaller than you imagine, isn't he? And I remember him coming to the front of the stage and just standing still and just surveying the audience with a quiet confidence that I've never experienced anywhere else. It was absolute and a masterclass in commanding an audience. I think the A-level actor, A-list level actors know how to do this because also they know that we'd said people could take photographs in the first five minutes. And funnily enough, when I worked in publishing, I, I um, looked after a publicity campaign for Whoopi Goldberg and she did exactly the same thing at an event where she, she said, right, I'm going to stand here and let you all take the pictures, the photographers. And she stood with a book and moved around and moved around again and, you know, and then that's it. And it's con- I think part of it is con- containing that, but that, that media attention or, or public attention. But you're absolutely right about his, his presence and Funnily enough, he told me he afterwards, um, me and a couple of my colleagues uh, had dinner with him and he said um, that in America he can put a baseball cap on and go unnoticed until he opens his mouth <laughs> and he's got that beautiful, rich, sonorous English, obviously, voice <laughs> as well. And uh, he said he just gets instantly recognised when he, when he speaks. <laughs> so other people that you've been... I mean, obviously you've met many people... Um over the years who's been the one that you thought wow I mean obviously when you work with people in tv and media and film and what have you it's very easy to to feel a little bit like oh goodness Mm. yeah I'm standing next to whoever but what I've found is that um they they just it's just easier if you relate to people like you would anyone else and you talk about ordinary things Mm you know, like, oh, their children at school or, or you know, uh, something that happened to you mm. on the way to work or mm. anything really. It's, I'm trying to think of examples now. but I, It is, it's that, you, it's treating uh, them as, as people. Because, yeah, because uh, they get so used to people not treating them as people. I think mm. that's the problem. I mean, there was one time I, I did some publicity with Paula Yates, mm. who some people will remember was a presenter on The Big Breakfast, wife of Bob, Bob Geldof. Um, and also the tube and but she was really um someone who kind of forged her own path in in broadcasting and she was very well. much a mum wasn't she very much a mum too um and we were going up to i think we were in i think we were in we were definitely in an airport somewhere i think we were heading up to to a book selling event and um she 
she wasn't made up with you know the full Paul Yates makeup and you know there were a couple of times I I went to I remember another time we, we were going through a uh, she'd just done an event and we were going through a shopping centre and she was going to a toy shop to buy things for her, her children and she'd come from the big breakfast and she was fully made up with like a full length gown on <laughs> it was very <laughs> odd walking through a shopping centre but on this occasion we were in the airport she wasn't made up at all um, and she she um, this pe- these people walked by and recognised her and the, one of one of them said oh she looks like a little lad <laughs> and she was like quite hurt by Mm. that you know Mm. and I think there is this feeling that people can just say whatever they want to someone famous and they can judge and obviously this was before Twitter before Facebook before these things were personal Mm. things were said online as well um and there is that feeling that oh well they're they're in the public eye they're fair game but they're people like anyone else they're people and they hurt and Mm. I remember hearing Chris Moyles the DJ saying that on radio and he said you know he was quite a controversial character and he went out to provoke at times and he said but he was really taken aback how personal people could be and how critical Mm. and he said I think people forget sometimes I do have feelings and there is a persona that I put out there and I've just come back as you know from um St Andrews from the golf resort and they have a number of uh a-list celebrities up there and she said the ones that are the true stars the are always the nicest. Yeah. They're the ones that have made it and they don't need to be anything else. They don't need to pretend. And they virtually put you at ease and lead the conversation. And they said, actually, sometimes it's the influencers, the people that are, you know, famous for famous sake, uh, that are the more tricky ones. And, mm. you know, having worked in sport a long time, People still have all the vulnerabilities and the fears. And, of course, yeah. And, and like we thought- were saying about um, creativity, you know, trying to, if you're, you might have had the, you know, really great film, but then you've poured your heart into your next project and it flops and then everyone wants to comment on it. Mm. You know, you can't just go, well, look at my last film. <laughs> you know, obviously people will be thinking mm. about their, their latest book. I didn't really answer your question about um, who's inspired mm. me most. And I would say it would have to be, someone who I worked with and who became a a friend over the years um, who sadly passed away in 2013 and that's Ian Banks Mm -hmm. also Ian M Banks he he wrote his science fiction under the the name with the middle initial who was absolutely he was just such a one of those people you meet in life who had been very he was very successful but so down to earth and so generous in all ways Mm -hmm. you know aspects of the the word and I've, um, I, you know, I met people through Ian. He had a friend who was a composer who I'm seeing this weekend with his wife. We're, we're going to see them because we've we've just stayed friends for mm. for all these years. But he, we started off, um, I think it helped that I liked science fiction because mm. that was his passion. Yeah. And when I worked in my first job at Macmillan Publishing, they didn't publish much science fiction, but I found a copy of the play of games with the bright red cover on on the shelf I thought oh this looks interesting and I hadn't actually read The Wasp Factory at that point which was his first and kind of very controversial notable novel and uh, so I read that and and I went back and read various others and then can remember seeing him in reception one day and thinking oh that's that that man (laughs) (laughs) and then um, 
I started, I moved companies and by chance they were publishing some of his work and then they got bought out and as happens in publishing, you know, companies merge and, and I ended up doing the publicity for all of his, his books. And uh, I used to, because he lived in just outside Edinburgh, I used to go up and, and stay in hotels and eventually said, oh, just come and stay at the house. <laughs> so I stayed yeah. at the house when, I, when we were doing um, tours up there. And we discovered we had a, a mutual love of curry. So after each bookshop event, we'd go and have a curry. The first question when we arrived anywhere was, which is the best curry house in, you know, Leeds, Newcastle, Edinburgh, wherever. And uh, and then, yeah, just used to go up for visits and that outside work, work time. But we spent a lot of time together because he travelled, um, you know, travelling between bookshops, doing tours and got to the stage where we could sit quite happily on the train in silence, just read the paper or, or whatever. And, and it, he was just lovely. And we miss him so much still. And it must be fabulous on both sides of that relationship because he knows that, going back to what we talked about before about that trust and when you, you've you written, you've poured your heart into something, to hand that over to somebody, to mm. know that that, you know, to know that you were invested in him and his work must be a massive um, element in that trust, in that relationship. Yeah, I think um, there was a surprising moment to me at some point, at various points in my publicity career, because you start as, you know, kind of young and not really knowing much, where you realise that authors do care what your opinion is of their book. Um, rightly or wrongly you know but um, if you say oh yeah I really enjoyed you reading your latest book look really look forward to promoting it and oh oh thank you very much you know and it gives them a boost and I suppose it is because you've become someone they 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 trust and get on with Um, so yeah there is there is definitely an, an element of that but he was someone he was very comfortable in his own shoes I think and um, he he didn't he didn't need he wasn't kind of a very insecure person who needed a lot of validation like like some creative yeah. people can can be which is you know we're all different and have you had the situation then don't name names but have you had the situation where you've read thought something and thought that's not my cup of tea or uh, oh well, this is yeah. great but you've had, <laughs> and you've had to be you know out there publicizing it and yeah and you know you well, both when you're a publicist and running a festival, mm. you can't be precious about these things. Mm. I can't say, right, well, I'm only going to have authors at the festival whose books I absolutely adore and love. And, mm. you know, sometimes you've got to say, well, OK, this isn't really a genre I'm particularly interested in. But um, I know a lot of other people are. So um, I'll, I'll program it, you know. Um, so it's simple as that. You, you, you're not it's not it it's not my festival it's a town's yeah. festival and yeah. uh, i try and put things in there that will appeal to a broad range of people we've got a, a visitor to the podcast haven't we Who's i did yes i didn't know if you wanted to mention this but she shook and her college angled this is our cat she's called amber and she she's uh, 10 years old nearly 11 and last year she had a, a little seizure. She had vestibular syndrome. So when she walks, you may notice she's got a little head tilt, Aww. which is quite cute. But uh, yeah, they, they um, <laughs> brought her home from the vets and they said, oh, we've put her in a comfort vest, which is, uh, you know, I thought, oh, that'll be kind of practical sort of 
thing, like a little, I don't know, little kind of, um, I don't know what I thought it was going to be, but it turned out to basically be a leopard skin leotard. (laughs) (laughs) And as you you can see, Deborah, she's ginger and fluffy. So, and she's a bit of a diva, so it suited her perfectly. Well, she definitely came to see what was going on, didn't she? She did, yes, I, I forgotten she was uh, inside rather than out. If she gets a nuisance, I'll pop her out of the room. This year's Literature Festival, your headliner has absolutely sorted out my Christmas present challenges this year. So uh, who's your headliner this year? So uh, one of our key people is John Cooper Clark. Mm -hmm. um, And I spotted he'd got a book out and he's doing um a a a discussion event for us because he he does performance events as well which is slightly different but he's going to be interviewed by the former road manager of the clash johnny green um and uh it's on april the 3rd it'll actually be our our last well we've got one pre-festival event but it'll be our last Mm. official event at the university so yeah really excited about that because it you know every year you the one thing people always say to me is, who have you got coming? And they want to hear, you know, a couple of names that they recognise. Yeah. Um, so we always try and get a few a few interesting names in, in there. Um, uh, so, yeah, that, that'll be fun. It'll be probably a bit anarchic and uh, but that's all good. It's you know, a new audience, audiences. isn't it, as well? And, you know, before, um, when we were just discussing that, you know, it's not your festival, but that's the whole point of reading it's that curiosity and and perhaps learning something new and finding a new genre Mm -hmm. and we have such a wealth don't you know we have Simon Armitage we have Joanna Harris and many many other very talented writers in the area it's an opportunity for people to find new talent as well I would have thought yeah that's really important to us I mean we we need those big names to to kind of attract Mm. audiences um and to get them to look at the brochure and say oh mm. that that event looks interesting mm. and I love it sometimes people turn up to things and say oh we came to something earlier in the day then you mentioned you know I'll say oh th- this evening if you're interested mm. we've got this going on and they actually do come along as as a response and and come to new things and also our volunteer team often say that oh mm. we went to something that we wouldn't have thought of going to but we enjoyed it so much and it is about well, try something new, you know, maybe, maybe don't just go to the, the big name authors, but come to something that's a little bit different, you know, maybe a discussion topic or um, an author who's who's new. We've got one event, for example, um, with Stephen May, who's a, a an established author, and um, Devika Penambulum, who is a new brand new author. And they've both written books. Stephen's is on... Um, imagining Stalin's early life and uh, a particular wow. episode mm-hmm. when he was in London for a conference. And Devika's is about um, Gauguin, uh, but from the point of view of his 13-year-old child, Brian, it's called I Am Not Your Eve. So that's the case where we've put an established author with a with a new author, but to discuss something that they've both kind of had to grapple with in their work, which is mm-hmm. creating historical fiction out of real lives and I think that's that's a really interesting topic so I'm sure they'll both bring different perspectives to that 
Yeah, and as an audience, you're you're challenging yourself again, aren't you? You're opening your mind, you're challenging your perspective. And and I love the idea of looking at something from a, a different perspective. Quite often you hear this, don't you, in, in history books and a different author will bring a different perspective. And so often, you know, a little bit like we were saying, you know, it's not my festival, it's about other people as well. Sometimes I think one of the challenges is, especially after the last two years, we can become so insular and so looking through our own lens. I do think that opportunity to open up and look at things from a different perspective is incredibly valuable. Well, I think one key thing from that, we always pride ourselves on our accessibility, but we weren't doing very much online before 2020. Mm. And we just arranged to do, we'd done a a, a live streamed event in early March. It's a pre-festival event um, with someone called Tom Cutler, who'd been diagnosed with autism as a you know, in Mm. his 50s. So that was a really interesting talk Mm. we did at the library and we live streamed it and we said, oh, oh, you know, that that worked okay. We must kind of try and do more of this. Mm. Next thing, um, we basically had to abandon all of our live events for the 2020 festival because of COVID and move everything online at very short notice to the extent that we couldn't really do discussions. We just did, you know, um, author readings. We film, mm. got them to film themselves and Q&As and things like that. So we managed to co- cobble together <laughs> a complete... It was heartbreaking because we were so close to, mm. to the festival starting and, we, you know, we had to cancel a lot of things. And then we got later on in the year because n- no one knew what the landscape was going to look like. We all thought September it was all going to yeah. Well, spring I, back I was, to life, um, didn't we? I was phoning venues and saying, can we rebook this for the autumn? Oh, you better choose the date quick because everyone's doing that. And of course, no one could do anything in the autumn. We then got towards the end of the year and discovered, actually, we're not going to be able to do a, a, a live events in March 2021. Mm. And we were mm. back in lockdown for our 2021 festival so that by then though we'd had chance to regroup we've got a really um good agile team Mm. and one of our team um upskilled herself basically to sort out zoom and webinars and you know things that we could run and she did a brilliant job and all of our march events just about were on um were on zoom um and i it, I felt a bit deflated in a way at the end because, mm. I, I, you know, we hadn't had that lovely live experience and people coming up to you afterwards. Oh, I really enjoyed that. Yeah. Um, but we we had a lot of interest and a lot of traction with it. Um, but we ended up doing a few autumn events live just to get our toe back in the water and try and, you know, see. And we did an event with Val McDermott, the crime writer, for example, Queen of Crime. And that was brilliant. And we, we kind of made sure there was plenty of space so people felt safe. Yeah. And, you know, that's another thing to stress for this year. We're still being quite careful Mm. um, about venues and about how we approach the festival because even though government guidelines are pretty much lifting, um, obviously some people are more cautious. But the other key thing is, yeah, from the point of view of accessibility, from the point of view of, you know, developing the festival, we will now be a blended festival moving yes. forward. We'll always have online events. We One of our biggest events this year is online. It's with Tony Tone, who's an influencer mm. and a kind of a women and girls ambassador. Mm. She works for, for various, she, you know, works for charities and 
encourages empowerment and this sort of thing. Um, and she's written a book, um, I wish I knew this earlier, <laughs> about her experiences. Um, and it, she's going to do an online event because a lot of that, that will be able to access people from a wider area. She doesn't have to travel here. Mm. People who can't get out of the house can still listen. Mm. And, and that's important for, you know, for what we do. Another one, in fact, is um, a, a wheelchair user Paralympian who, um, you know, again, she, for travelling is not so easy, but also for people who might want to listen to that, yeah. it, it, you know, it's probably an easier thing to do do that online. And I know that um, one of the things that has always impressed me is... The, you, you invest so much in your volunteers as well. You've got volunteers coming from the university, from the community, and it's such a great opportunity for people to be part of something really special, um, really inspiring and educational, but just lots of fun. But what a great... I mean, I've met some of your volunteers over the years and, and supported you in that, but so many of them, you see growing confidence just being involved with the the festival. So it's it's putting something back into the community in that way as well, isn't it? Definitely. I mean, they're, they're hugely important for us, but I do mm. think people, as you say, get a lot out of it. And uh, when I started with the festival, I basically had a team of student volunteers, but, we, you know, we get these brilliant volunteers and they go off, live elsewhere and yeah. follow their careers and which is what you what you expect them to do so um we've kind of broadened it out to the town and um we've got some volunteers who've been with us for quite a long time now and I've got a brilliant vo- volunteer coordinator and um uh, festival manager in Julia Liloff who who does all this mm. for the festival um she has got accreditation for us through the council for our volunteering she meets volunteers individually to chat with them. Um, you know, we get them to to kind of fill in the form about their interests and their abilities. And are there anything? Is there anything they they'd rather not do? Because mm. some people don't want to handle money, for example. They're mm. not confident to take money at the door, but they'd be very happy moving tables around. Other people might have mobility issues or hearing issues. So we try and make sure that the volunteers are when they're stewarding or, or anything else they do is kind of. Um, we're aware of who they are and what they want to do and what the capabilities are. They're playing to their strengths, aren't Play they? Play to their strengths, yeah. And um, and then we offer the training, which we think is really important mm. on confidence with you and um, presentation, because they're the first people that audiences see and and sometimes that authors will see. Yeah. And also on accessibility. And we had the most lovely email a couple of years ago from. Um, a lady who's a wheelchair user who just sent this quite long email saying thank you so much because I was nervous about coming out but I didn't need to be your volunteers were proactive and I didn't know this at the time you know mm-hmm. this all came mm-hmm. in later um they, they were proactive about um helping me and asking me what I needed and making sure that I was given access to the venue um and I think that sort of thing is is just really important that I spent a lot of time in the 90s taking authors to festivals <laughs> and there's some brilliant festivals and there's people work so hard and often it is very volunteer led. Um, but event management is a particular skill. And in fact, I'm going to be teaching some a, a short course for 18 to 25 year olds on it in, in April. Um, 
So it 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 really is it's very easy to get wrong. And people, you know this, people remember from a customer service point of view, they remember bad things that happen um, and they might forget all the good. Mm. And I, actually, something you told us in training once, I always repeat to, to um, volunteers about people who've had a bad experience, but then are treated well. And, you know, you get the apology, you get looked after. They end up giving you a higher rating than people who haven't had yeah. The unfortunate experience and that really hit home to me you know because it's like okay something went wrong but people understood why it went wrong and helped me and sorted it out for me and 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 were apologetic and listened to me Mm. and And it's how that's handled and they become your advocates then which is exactly what you want isn't it definitely yeah. yeah 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 so if you could have anybody at the festival oh Oh my word! Uh, oh, oh, you've really kind of put me on the spot with that one. Um, let's have a think. Well, we would love to have Patrick, Sir Patrick Stewart, back definitely. Um, I've actually had quite a few people who I've wanted to have along. Um, oh, I'm going to have to have a think about that one. Is it? Don't tell me it's living or dead because that'll make it an even big, <laughs> an even bigger pool to draw from. Funnily enough, I was trying to get Val McDermott for years and years, and we kept trying to. It wasn't. It wasn't her fault at all. She had other things going on, and we we just never managed to get get it working properly. And same with Alexander McCall Smith, actually, who writes a number one ladies detective agency. Mm. He did an online event for us eventually. But um, sorry, I might have to just remove my cat because she's starting to interfere with things. <laughs> Don't worry. I'm going to also ask you your favourite novel as well. What book do we all need to read? Uh, so uh, just as you uh, return to the mic. <laughs> yes, um, I read the most amazing book last year um, by Ocean Vung. Um, and I, I just go back to it all the time. And I've I've never done that before I've had novels I reread he's a poet but mm. this was his first novel and um I, I just even in the first few paragraphs that there were just phrases that made me stop and think and mm. the whole novel is like that you know you kind of wanted you couldn't dip in on any page and it it it's a bit it's about the story but it's about the language and about the the sentences that just make you think wow that's a really interesting idea or that's so beautifully written it's called um on earth we're briefly gorgeous okay i'll be uh, so looking I that so i definitely up. recommend that i mean until i read that um and another novel I always recommend is a, a one called Air and Fire by Rupert Thompson, who I mentioned earlier mm. as a writer. That That's just one of my favourites that I do regularly reread. And another one I reread regularly is The Spire by William Golding, which is an old favourite. I studied for A-level, but I go uh, back to that. Well, I've read quite a bit of William Golding, but I've not read that. So oh. I've got three there to have a go at. I remember once reading somewhere, we often throw the line away that is a book that you can't put down and somebody saying actually a really inspiring beautiful book is the book that you do put down because you read it and then you have to reflect on what 
you've just read mm-hmm. and and for me there are two types of book there's the ones that you know a rip roaring s- storyline that you you carried away with but for me I always enjoy a book that does make you just listen to the language that paints pictures that makes you stop and reflect and it sounds like that might be one of those yeah definitely and I think also when poets write novels it's an interesting one because um you know, if you're a poet, it doesn't necessarily mean you have the gift of storytelling. But the ones who do, it's it's really is something. I mean, someone like Kai Miller, for example, who's um, Jamaican-born but lives lives in London now. And he he's written uh, August Town and and various other novels. And again, it's just a beautiful way with words, but also um, the you know the, the story to go along with it. And just things to make you think in a different way. I've just thought of a question. We were wrapping it up, but just one question I've got. When you're meeting people and talking to these um, authors and poets, do they speak in a way that is different? Do they have a natural way with their words in their everyday conversation? Because I know... Sometimes when you meet an actor, they step into a performance. And the reason I ask, we've been engrossed with a very unusual programme that I think is on the BBC, which is called Winter Walks. Um, and I know Simon Armitage has done one of them and Lem Cisse did one as well. And it's about them just walking with their own camera and enjoying the Yorkshire uh, countryside and their use of language and it's virtually what they don't say as much as what they do say that is so captivating and I wondered I mean but in that situation they are still performing I wondered you know when you meet people face to face whether they still have that um yeah some of them definitely do I mean you mentioned Lem who Lem Sisse who Mm. is our our patron as I mentioned earlier and and he absolutely he's just fascinating to to talk to generally mm. um in fact he he really it was really nice not long after lockdown when everything happened with the festival he gave me a, a phone call and and just said you know how are you doing and what's it and, and I think he it must have been it's strange for people who perform a lot to to suddenly not be able to perform as well and um it was really nice having a conversation with him on the phone but yeah whenever he's come and, and done events and I've taken him into schools or something like that um it's just fascinating talking to him and obviously there is a slightly on-off performance of uh, element to performance mm. you know because some people will arrive and they might be a bit tired or they might just need a cup of coffee to perk them up and then they go on to stage and perform and I saw that a lot with Ian Banks actually because we travelled all over the place and some of the tour schedules were a bit <laughs> gruelling. You know, you'd have interviews all day, then yeah. event in the evening. And um, But uh, I think if, you're, if you've got that, that gift of performing, which he, he absolutely has, then he can, you know, you, you can turn it on and stand up and perform. I've even had to draw on it a bit myself, um, presenting sometimes, mm-hmm. you know, when, when you're very busy during the, I've been very busy during the festival and running from place to place. And then the evening comes and you've got to stand up on a stage and, and switch on the charisma. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I know we've done some training on that, how Mm. to stand and how to present yourself. And, and I've, I did some performance poetry training with Rose Kondo, who often is involved with the festival, similar sort of thing. You know, you're, you're, just the way you stand, the way you project your voice. But I love doing that. So, it, you know, I just have to go, right, okay, I'm now 
I've gone from organising mode to presenting mode. If you're introducing an author, you don't want to stand and go, yeah, this author, uh, you know, in in a monotone sort of voice. You've got to go up and and go, right, okay, everyone, are you ready for this author coming? And try and throw in a joke or some comment to just Mm. get their attention. The only time I didn't have to do that, I'll just tell you quickly. For another festival, um, Todmorden Festival, um, I interviewed Sally Wainwright, Mm. of course, a brilliant screenwriter, um, about Gentleman Jack. And uh, I, I, we we walked onto the stage, and you'd think it was a rock concert. The yeah, the reception she had from from the Todmorden locals <laughs> was just <laughs> extraordinary. And I think it was largely because Gentleman Jack had been so groundbreaking; mm. they were thrilled to be there. Mm. But um, I, I, I sat down, and I said, oh, "I've never had." quite such a good response just from walking on stage with anyone before <laughs> and immediately that relaxes the author and the audience well the screenwriter in that case and the audience the um, person interviewing them and yeah we had a great event <laughs> it's that it's the intimacy isn't it because often especially in a smaller location as well but as you say it's that energy I'm so visual as you know but I always say to people you know think about the dial and dial it up because mm-hmm people will, you will lift their energy as well. And they want you to do that. They want yeah, to be yeah. entertained. That's what they're there for. And whether you're in a room, I can't remember how many were there, but probably something like three, 400, I would guess, um, from memory. It was quite a big-ish theatre sort of space and quite high stage, you know. Mm. Um, but even when, when we do our poetry slam, for example, which is just in a little venue that holds about, you know, 60 people crammed in, 70 people, um, you know, you need an, a compare who's going to bound up onto the stage and get everyone excited about right. Your next poet is, and you know, get that the, work the room really. They're performing as well, aren't they? Yeah, 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 definitely. Okay, Michelle. Well, thank you so much for giving up the time today because I know you've got a busy schedule with the festival coming up. I will link in the show notes the literature festival website the listings and also reference some of the authors that you've mentioned and uh, thank you so much have a super super festival 27th of march is it 24th 24th of march yeah Yeah. but do pop down to the hub on the piazza and find out more you know we've got uh, brochures there or brochures in the library and bookshops I'm not sure I'll get my 14-year-old to come and meet Zog, but after many years of reading (laughs) Julia Donaldson, I might be there myself. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. I hope you've enjoyed today's conversation and I'd love you to join in the conversation as well. The best way to do that is through social media and I can be found at Instagram and Twitter at DO underscore impact. If you'd like to sign up for my newsletter or learn more about my monthly membership, The Impact Club, please visit the website at deborahogden.com. enjoyed this episode of on brand with i would so appreciate it if you would rate review and subscribe to help other people know we exist thanks for tuning in and i'll see you on the next episode thanks for listening to on brand with it was hosted by deborah ogden and produced by me anthony short this has been a short stories production